continue with the ministry of the Word of God, turn with me to John chapter 20. John 20. We'll take up the word in verse 19. Let's stand together once more to hear the word of God, not the word of man. We stand in reverence for God who speaks. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, as we continue in our worship, we pray that as we come now to the preaching of your word, that you would bless that which you have appointed. Lord, we are all but frail humanity, and we look to you that by your spirit you would be work in the midst of our service of worship to bless the proclamation of the word, to go forth with the demonstration of the spirit's power that you would take the frail instrument of a minister of the word and use him for your glory. And Lord, grant us attentive hearts and minds to receive the word, and may you establish it in us that it will bear a good harvest for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Luke begins uh, the account of the Acts of the Apostles the very next book after John here, he reports that the risen Christ presented himself alive to the apostles, I'm quoting here, whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive after his sufferings sufferings by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. And so here we, we are on that first day of the resurrection, and Jesus is present with them yet another 40 days. Children, Children, I want you to listen to me. In this passage, John tells the story of when Jesus first appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, after he arose from the grave. John tells us that Jesus was suddenly with his friends in a room where all the doors were closed. How do you suppose Jesus did that? The doors are all shut, and then suddenly Jesus is in the midst. Well, we understand that Jesus was more than a man. Your father is but a man, and Jesus was a man, but he's also fully God. Jesus is the God-man, and he was no longer dead but alive, and Jesus wanted his friends to see him. He wanted them to know that he was alive. You remember that even as we've seen in the earlier parts of this chapter, that there's been questions, that the word has come, that... that uh, Jesus is alive. Even Mary and the other women have seen him. But now Jesus appears to them all. Here we have in this passage the infallible proof of Jesus' resurrection. He showed himself alive. And on the day which he arose, Jesus had sent Mary to them to announce his resurrection. 
but he also sought to show them the love and confirm their faith in him. He then came himself, and he gave them all the assurance, all the assurance they could desire of the truth and the reality that he was raised again. They no longer needed to rely upon hearsay. What someone else told them, they saw him resurrected and indeed became eyewitnesses to his being alive from the dead. Well, why was that important for Peter, James, and John and the other disciples to see Jesus alive? Because Jesus was sending them to be witnesses to the world and to build a church upon their testimony. And John's witness is to you children even. He wrote these, this story down so that you, even you young children, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you would have life in his name. We're only going to have two points this morning. I know that's a change. I'm a number of times four, sometimes three. But this morning we have two points. Uh, there are sub-points that I've supplied to you. You find them in the worship guide that we should help you to track along. But we're going to consider the risen Christ appears to his disciples And secondly, the risen Christ commissions his disciples. We begin then with the risen Christ appears to his disciples. This this portion is found in verses 19 and 20. We begin with the setting, verse 19, the setting in which he came. The Holy Spirit wanted John to tell us these particular things. He wanted to know when this happened. And so John writes, the same day at evening, the same day Jesus arose, but he's even more specific, being the first day of the week. That's the time when this took place. The first day of the week would, of course, be Sunday. This is Resurrection Day. This is the original Resurrection Day. This is the day when Christ arose, and it shifted the time of worship for the church. So even here, we are on the first day of the week. But John also tells us the doors were shut in that place where the disciples had assembled. John explains why they had them shut, for fear of the Jews. We've seen John refer to the Jews, the religious leaders particularly as in mind, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of the people. They're the ones who demanded that Pilate would have Jesus put to death, that he would be crucified. The disciples still don't know what may fall upon them because they are followers of Christ. And so they've heard that Jesus is risen, and so they're gathered in this place for fear of the Jews. There's a lesson here for us. We'll make just a few as we go along. Let us understand that even in times of great difficulty, we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for worship. This was a time of tremendous difficulty for these men. They didn't know if they would be arrested, and they also would be put to death. But what have they done? They've come together. They've assembled together of God's people. The writer of the book of Hebrews even command, writes that command, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And indeed, let us also think of our brothers and sisters in some lands where they come together at risk of life. Uh, they come together uh, gathering, coming one or two at a time, trying to be unseen, as it were, and they come together to meet behind locked doors to worship the same Jesus who was so much hated then you notice some things that are similar, children, in this passage, even about what we're doing, when we're doing it? It's Sunday. It was Sunday then. Uh, we are the church assembled. They were the church assembled. Uh, we are here to meet with Jesus. 
And even as Jesus appeared to them visibly, Jesus reveals himself to us in word and sacrament. He is present with us spiritually. We learn that God has put his honor on this day, that we should worship him the day when he meets with his people, when he has promised to meet with us, for we are gathered in the name of Christ. Let us also take note that Jesus' people met both morning and evening. Here they are, Sunday evening, gathered together. And we're reminded that Jesus is blessed the whole day as the day of the Lord to be kept for his glory. Well then, in that setting, Jesus reveals himself. We see Jesus' revelation. John writes, Jesus came and stood in the midst and spoke. Jesus came in his own body, the body that was familiar to them. They recognized him. It's a body that is now glorified. It's a resurrected body. Um, It is clear that there's something different about him. But something also is clear. The fullness of his glory is still veiled from their eyes. They're not seeing him as Peter, James, and John saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration when the veil was pulled away even more. Not fully, for on sinful men on earth, they could not have beheld him in the fullness of his glory as God. And yet they saw some manifestation of that. They saw this glorious witness as Jesus met with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. But even now, here, that glory is, is uh, hidden from them by a veil, we would say, still of his humanity. But there's, there's manifestations of his glory, the, the chief of which God has appointed. He has risen. He's not in the grave. He has overcome sin, death, and the grave. He is the conqueror. And there he is in their midst, just as he told them it would be. He even told them that he would meet with them. And so they were there. They were there with the door shut. Matthew Henry explains, I'm quoting here, this does not at all weaken the evidence of his having a real human body after his resurrection. Though the doors were shut, he knew how to open them without any noise, come in so they may not hear him as formerly as he had walked on the water and yet had a true body. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and he's fully God. We do not fully comprehend how. John doesn't tell us how he was suddenly in their midst. But though the doors were locked, he was suddenly with them. We might remember those times when Jesus disappeared in the crowd, when they were seeking to seize him so they could kill him. But Jesus wasn't to be killed by stoning. You remember when he went to Nazareth that they became enraged against him and they took him up to a, a cliff that was in Nazareth to throw him off. But Jesus was not to be killed by falling down into a ravine. He was to be crucified, as was foretold by the prophets. God preserved him and even gave him ways that he just, in some sense, was removed from their midst. Well, people of God, what do I do with this? Let us find comfort in this, that Jesus was suddenly in their midst, though the doors were shut. No doors can shut out Jesus. When he comes to meet with his people. Think of the persecuted church for fear of, you know, the Jews of their day, the people of their day. They come in, they're, they're shut in, but that does not keep Jesus out. Jesus is able to meet with them. He meets with his people spiritually. 
Let me give you another application. I don't know what will befall us. We know that the times are changing. Uh, the, the, the culture, the, the land in which we live is increasingly hostile to the gospel and increasingly hostile to us as believers. So remember, should you find yourself alone in a prison cell, those gates and bars cannot keep Jesus from you. He is able to come to his people wherever they are. Well, then we see Jesus makes a proclamation. We consider Jesus' proclamation. Jesus says there in verse 19, the last words, Peace be to you. We find in, in this, this passage um, three times that this pronouncement comes here in verse 19. You look over in verse 21 again. He says, Peace to you. And then at the end of verse 26, again, he says, Peace to you. Now, amongst the Jews, it was very common when they would meet one another, they would, in the Hebrew, say, shalom. Most of you have heard that word, which is essentially peace to you. It's a pronouncement, a greeting. Uh, the peace would be to you. It, it very much the idea of a prayer, you know, that my hope is that God will grant his peace to you, peace to you. But here Jesus isn't just giving this greeting of shalom. Jesus' words were much, very much as a benediction, a pronouncement of peace as he who is the prince of peace he brings this with this words these words jesus bestowed on his friends all the effects and the blessings that he has secured with his resurrection he's accomplished the work of uh, salvation he has paid the penalty on the cross he has raised to newness of life all these benefits are for his people indeed what he has secured is peace for them and he pronounces peace with me with you <clears throat> jesus is the one who made a covenant with the father then indeed he would be able to bring peace to all those whom the father had given to him the Father, before the foundation of the earth, gave Jesus a people. And as the Son of God, he made a covenant with the Father. Um, my seminary professor that taught systematic theology referred to that agreement, the agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as the covenant of peace. You will read other labels for it. But indeed, it, the purpose of God was that there would be peace for sinful man because they had also decreed that Adam would sin. And yet God decreed that through his Son, he would make peace with all those that he gave to his son and indeed all those whom Christ would suffer and die for, be buried for, and be risen again for. And indeed Jesus pronounces this peace to them as the only mediator between God and man. Jesus has paid the debt that we owed. He's removed the stain of sin and he has secured life, everlasting life for all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Therefore, get this, when Jesus speaks peace to you, it is more than just a greeting. It is more than just a prayer that perhaps God might grant you peace. It is a pronouncement of peace. As the Prince of Peace, he pronounces peace to his people who are united to him by faith. And that peace is peace with God. Once you were a rebel, once you were at odds with God, now Christ has brought us near to God. Peace with God. He's also given us peace of conscience our troubled consciences, the guilt of sin that we once knew is now removed. Peace. As Paul says at the end of Romans 7, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. 
for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. We have peace of conscience, peace with God. We also have peace with one another. You remember from Genesis, right at the close of chapter 3, we heard of the birth of two sons. Chapter 4 opens with those two sons, Cain and Abel at odd. You know, one is fearing God, following God, the other is not. And there's a war between them. And so it is because of sin and sinful people in the world. There's turmoil. But when it comes to God's people, we are at peace with one another. Yeah, I know. I have a family. I know what it's like. There's time where there's turmoil in the home. Sometimes your mom's just like, can't we just have some peace and quiet around here? We need the peace that Jesus can give. And he brings it into our hearts. He brings it into our relationship. He brings it into our homes as the Prince of Peace. Because of his completed work, it is possible that we can have peace with one another. And so when we've sinned against a brother or sister, go to them and indeed make peace. If your brother or sister has sinned against you, go to them because of what Christ has accomplished. We have peace with one another. We don't need to have turmoil and unhealed relationships. Jesus brings us peace. I want to consider more about Jesus' appearance in the middle of this assembly. We're told he appeared in the flesh. It's made clear by verse 20. When he had said this, peace be to, with you, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now we know his feet were pierced by nails also. Perhaps the gown that he wore covers down. It goes down covering his feet that they cannot see those. But he shows them his hand and his side. He's showing them that he is the same Christ who was crucified, that they can see the marks that were made as nails were driven in him to secure him to the Roman cross. These five wounds, as we sing, speak of his death and of his suffering for sinners. They're also proof to the disciples that this is the same Jesus. Now they recognize him. Perhaps they wonder, you know, is this just some apparition, some spiritual manifestation, but he shows them his wounds, that indeed he is the self-same Christ. And even though he was crucified and dead, he is very much alive, very much alive. This is what he manifested. This is his greatest manifestation. He meets Mary in the garden. She falls down and worships him, but here... We would assume the women are with the disciples as well. They see him, and he makes himself known, showing the wounds. And these five wounds still are in his humanity. They're still in his flesh. They still, as it were, speak for us, even as Jesus ever lives, to make intercession for the saints before God. John writes in the Revelation as seeing Jesus on the throne. And what does he see? He sees him appearing as a lamb as though it had been slain. Speaking of the wounds that he yet bears in heaven. Revelation 5, 6. And when Jesus comes again, these wounds will still be visible. Indeed, throughout all of eternity, when we behold him, we will see evidence of his crucifixion that he died for our sake, and yet he is very much alive, ruling and reigning, 
and what would have been shame indeed or manifestation of his glory and his power to secure salvation for those who are unworthy and undeserving. And we will ever bless his name as we behold him exalted above in the, the fullness and the glory of his majesty as God and the God man. We will be, so we will see his humanity with those wounds and we will be ever blessing the Lord because it was for our sakes that he suffered and died. Well, this appearance, no doubt, brought the disciples peace. Even as he pronounces peace to them, he grants them peace. He even breathes peace upon them. Seeing him would have cast out their fears. There he is. We've heard that he's risen, Peter and John. We've heard this, and we, we see him. All those who were gathered in that upper room, what they've heard, now they see. And oh, they were filled with a new emotion. They've spent Friday night and Saturday, the hours of Sunday morning, whatever those hours they might have been awake, with doubts, with dread, with fear, with many questions. They're all gone. All those dark, dark things of the soul are gone. And now the disciples are filled with overflowing joy. We see that seeing Jesus had a powerful impact on the disciples. Matthew Henry says, I just love this simple direct statement, it did them good. It did them good. Just a balm. Some of you children, you'll have, remember that moment you're playing in the yard and perhaps you, you fall and you skin your knee or uh, you're playing with a bicycle and you have a crash and you're crying and you're upset and then your mom shows up. You see your mom and it does you good. It does you good. How much more for these distressed disciples to see Jesus. It did them good. The doubts, the dreads, the fears swept away. They see him. John Calvin says, this means, I'm paraphrasing, this means that all that the grief which had gripped them because of his death was dispelled because of new life. Gone. Like a morning fog. Their faith was strengthened and their hearts rejoiced. This is exactly what Jesus had promised them. Flip back a couple of pages to John chapter 16 and verse 20. Jesus is telling them that they're going to go away. He's going to go away. Verse 20 says, Most assuredly I say to you, after he's told them about the cross, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. That's what happened when Jesus was crucified. They were weeping. They were sorrowful, but the world was rejoicing. And he says, and you will be sorrowful, but wonderful word but your sorrow will be turned to joy then look down at verse 22 therefore you now have sorrow but i will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you and that's exactly where they now find themselves with this joy in their hearts my friend are you troubled is there turmoil in your heart perhaps it's guilt because of sin. Do you long for peace? Indeed, the peace that passes understanding, peace with God that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do doubts overwhelm you? Come to Jesus. Come to the Prince of Peace. Come bringing nothing but your need and asking for Jesus to give you his perfect peace. 
then in him you will find joy. The sight of Jesus makes the heart glad, even though we are still on her, here on the earth. We can behold him with the eye of faith. Oh, the raptures of joys that will be ours when we see him as he is, coming upon the clouds in power and majesty. Well, secondly... We've seen the risen Christ reveal himself to his disciples. But in that same setting, even that same evening, things are unfolding in in some sense quickly. We don't know how many hours have elapsed. But Jesus, the risen Christ, then commissions his disciples. Verses 22 through 23, Jesus commissions his disciples. Jesus has spoken peace to the disciples once more. You see that in verse 21, as we noted. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. And then he says something I would say is unexpected. Something they did not expect to hear. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now there may be some remembrance when Jesus sent them out two by two, one time as the tw- as the 12 and another time he sent out 70 two by two. Maybe they're thinking of that, but what he's doing here, this is not the same sending as then. He's going to send them, and he's going to the right hand of the Father. He is commissioning them for a work. Jesus says, peace to you. The first time that we see that, it was no doubt to calm their troubled hearts. But this time with Jesus' peace to you, Jesus is about to commission them. He's given them a commission, and he would have them to understand, though this commission is given to them, it is a great commission. They have no reason to fear, for he is with them. What he has given them, they should be encouraged with, that they should be encouraged to accept his commissioning as apostles. And I'm using that word specifically, technically, apostles. They are his sent ones. Uh, the verb in the Greek, we, we get the word apostle from. It is a sent one. And so someone who is sent would then be a sent one. Some people are just, you know, it's a servant sent. But here we, we have this very technical, very specific, a capital A sent one. They are sent by Christ, even as Christ was sent by the Father. Christ, the first and the chief apostle, now is commissioning and sending these 11 when another will soon join them. But he's sending them as apostles to the world. Jesus ties their commission by him to the same commission that he received from his Father. This proves, as Paul says, that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. Here he is, the Son of God, the Son of Man, one person, commissioning them even as he had been commissioned by his Father, Jesus has equal authority with the Father as he commissions and sends them. The church's work then to carry the gospel to the nations is a continuation of what Jesus has been doing. Thus he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. I came. What did he come? What was John the Baptist told? He says the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. When he sent out the twelve and the seventy, they went... Uh, preaching a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is in the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God has now come Christ has secured the establishment and the foundation of it being the chief cornerstone and now it is given to these men to take that message to the nations 
Jesus is sending the 11 as apostles on a mission of his giving to continue the mission that he has come to do. He sends the apostles to publish his message of peace. This, this pronouncement of peace is because of what Christ has accomplished. Christ would have the message of peace proclaimed to the nations as far as the curse is found to go forth with a gospel message of peace. And indeed, he sends these out to preach the good news, but he also sends them commissioned and equipped to do signs and wonders as apostles. Indeed, you find that in the book of Acts, that they did signs and wonders as Christ confirmed that these were his sent ones and established the authority that he had given to them as they went forth to do their work. And how was it that they went out? What was it they went with? We know that the message is the gospel, but Jesus sent them preaching, to preach the gospel. I think you've heard me say before that this word preaching in the New Testament is it's very specific. It's not just for anyone. We will share as Christians. We share the gospel. We bear witness to the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. But in the New Testament, this word preaching, it means it's the verbal public proclamation of the word of God by the man of God called, gifted, and given to the church as a preacher. That is the New Testament definition of preaching. And he is sending the apostles to do that. He's called them. He's gifted them. He is sending them to preach his message to the nations. Praise God that it didn't end with the apostles, that he has continued to raise up ministers of the word under the apostles and through the generations, even until now, to preach the word. Because that is Christ's appointed means to carry the good news to the nations. What does Paul tell us? The world sees it as foolishness. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews. But we go preaching. And that's what Jesus did. Back in Mark's gospel, um, Jesus has healed a lot of people. If I remember right, it's in Capernaum. And he's getting ready to go. And the disciples said, well, there's more coming. He says, no, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose, I have come forth. Jesus was a preacher as well. Well, we see Jesus not only commissions the disciples, Jesus empowers the disciples. In verse 22, we read, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. While they were together in the upper room before the cross, Jesus made a promise to them that he would send another. He would send a comforter, the Holy Spirit by name. The Spirit now is given to them in great measure. These men had the Spirit because they're born of the Spirit. You're you're not a, a believer. You're not united to Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So they have the Holy Spirit. But now they've been commissioned, and Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them. They receive the Holy Spirit in a greater measure. And yet we know that at the day of Pentecost, they will receive the Holy Spirit in fullness. But this is what Jesus had promised. This will be a, a, a marker day, a significant day, as these men will be fully equipped then to go and carry out their commission as apostles. But even now, Jesus breathes on them the Holy Spirit that they would be equipped and competent to be heralds of the gospel, to complete the mission that was given to them. Because apart from the equipping of the Holy Spirit, they're men just like we are, and they could not have done it. 
but now they receive the Holy Spirit. We're reminded here of the beginning of creation when God breathed the breath of life into man. He formed him out of the dust of the earth, and then God breathed life into his nostrils. The breath of God went into Adam to give him life. And even now the Lord and Creator, Jesus Christ, breathes life into his church, sending them forth with the Spirit. Because apart from Christ, we have no life. What we see here is what we confess in the creed. I'm thinking of the Nicene. I believe in the Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. And here we see the Son giving the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned a moment ago at at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will fill them. The disciples were commissioned by Christ to carry to carry on, to continue Jesus' mission to the nations because Jesus is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. That's what he was telling them leading up to the cross. He said, I must return to the Father who sent me. And indeed, he's going to go. When he told Mary, don't cling to me because I must return to the Father. He's not staying after his resurrection as Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus stayed and they were able to embrace him and fellowship with him. Jesus is going to the right hand of the Father, and he's leaving the apostles to carry on the ministry, to pick up where he left off and to carry on this ministry. And indeed, we'll see them. They'll go preaching the gospel, and the Spirit will convict and convert people. Churches will be established. Men will be raised up. They will be given gifts and then given as gifts to the church, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, and as we see unfold in the book of Acts, because Christ is building his church even as he said. He would, and he did so to the apostles. If you look at the book of Revelation, there's that picture, not to be taken literally, but a picture that we would understand the church of the of the New Jerusalem, the, the church of God coming down. It's a, pictured as a, a cube and perfect symmetry, and there's the gates made from single pearls uh, with the names of the patriarchs on them. But then in that passage, we're told that the foundation of that city, thus the foundation of the church, is the apostles. Their names are written on their stones. Jesus, the cornerstone, then establishes the apostles as a foundation, and by them and through them, the gospel goes out to the nations, indeed across the expanse of the earth, sending them first to gather the lost sheep of Israel, but then eventually to the Gentiles. As they said, you will be witnesses for me, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. In the historical record of the church, that first century, we find a record that we have apostles arriving as far away as Japan and China and as far north as the British Isles. We saw the Ethiopian that Philip met with. He went down into Ethiopia. The gospel has gone out through the earth as God has promised We also see these Holy Spirit, the, the, these apostles that the Holy Spirit has come upon doing what Jesus said. He said, the Holy Spirit will equip you to recall, to call to mind all the things that I've taught you. And then some of the apostles and some of those associated with them then write Scripture. Holy Scriptures, even as the prophets of old have, the Holy Spirit equipped these human authors to write more of the Word of God. And as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, The authority that Jesus gave these men also included, it gave the apostles, 
not just everybody, but he gave the apostles the authority and power to communicate, to give, that is, the Holy Spirit to men by the laying on of hands. The Spirit came as they prayed, and he came from heaven, and they were but his messengers, because it is Jesus who then gave the Holy Spirit, even as he gave it to them. When the apostles laid hands on and prayed, the Holy Spirit came from the Father through the Son to those whom he was saving. The third way we see is Jesus gives authority to his disciples. Verse 23. Have you read this before? And you kind of went, huh? What? What does Jesus say? Right after he says, receive the Holy Spirit, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus gave a very particular authority to these apostles. He gave them authority to forgive sins on the earth after they received the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching and preaching in the house and it was so packed full that you couldn't get in and the disciples came with a man who was lame and they were insistent. They wanted Jesus to heal him. So they went up on the roof and they opened up the roof and they lowered the man down in front of where Jesus was teaching and Jesus sees him. He said, first thing he tells him, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And, of course, the religious leaders, the Jews, are there. they're scandalized, like, this is blasphemy. No one has authority to forgive sins except God. Jesus, by the Spirit, knowing what they were thinking, he says, which do you think is more difficult? To say, I forgive your sins or take up your bed and walk? And then Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man and says, take up your bed and walk. And he took it up and he walked out. And the people were stunned and praised God. Jesus, by the miracle, confirmed that indeed he had the authority to do what he said. He told that man his sins were forgiven. Jesus is giving that authority to the apostles, not to the church as a whole, not in that same degree, but to these apostles to forgive sins. Without the Holy Spirit, though, they would not have been suited to do this. But by the Holy Spirit filling them, he grants them a discernment, gives them the discernment that they need to do this work And indeed, we see the special and unique nature of the apostles. It is an office that when these men died and went to be with the Lord, that apostle is no more. There are pretenders today, uh, the uh, Church of the Apostles and so forth, claiming that they have an apostle that leads them, and they're imposters. For the apostles were those who had been with the Lord. Look in that book of Acts when they're looking for someone to replace Judas. Someone who'd been with them since the beginning, seen the miracles of Jesus, seen Christ crucified and raised from the dead. They were looking one for one like that. There's no one alive today that fits that description. But to them, he gave this authority. Now, how do we see that, this ability, this, uh, this authority to forgive sins and to retain sins? When Peter preached the gospel at Pentecost, those who heard him heard the gospel, were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit was working. And when they said, you know, men and brothers, what must we do to be saved? And what does Peter say? Repent and let everyone, every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter, by saying that, is forgiving them their sins. He is an apostle, and their sins are forgiven. And thus he says, repent. And be baptized. We see the other side of it. 
We go to Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, who conspired to sell a piece of land and obscure the, the full price that they paid, wanting to be honored by looking to do something like Barnabas had done. They come in one at a time, making out like they are giving the whole of it, which they didn't have to. It was theirs to do. Peter makes it clear. But Peter speaks, and they are struck dead. Ananias and Zabira are struck dead. Peter doesn't say, you're lying to me. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Here, they are full of the Spirit. And the sins of those two were not forgiven them. We see later on that Paul will speak to Elimus, the sorcerer, and he will be struck blind at Paul's command. Ever since the days of the apostles, it has been entrusted to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, led by faithful elders and preachers of the gospel, to proclaim a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins as men, women, boys, and girls come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we do not have this authority, we go forth with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as God applies it by his Holy Spirit, sinners, sins are forgiven them because of the completed work of Christ. And so we see something that's carried out as the message of the gospel is faithfully proclaimed across the land. The good news, my friends, is Jesus still declares to sinners, if you come to him for salvation, you seek it in him alone, by faith alone, your sins will be forgiven you. Jesus is still forgiving sins. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, he will wash you as white as snow. As we conclude, children, you remember at the outset that John was going to tell us a story. John has told this story. He's recorded what happened at that time in the upper room. And he has demonstrated proof that Jesus was risen from the dead. They saw him. They saw him with his wounds. They saw the resurrected Christ. They are faithful witnesses to what they have seen. And here we, through the preaching of the word, have seen the risen Christ presents himself to us. Those men, they knew him before the cross in the tomb, and they recognized him as the resurrected one, and they bear witness to us. He commissioned them as his first officers to carry on the ministry that he was doing, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven had come amongst men, and God is still doing that. Oh, that churches would be faithful. It grieves me when I hear denominations, whole denominations, abandoning this gospel message for some fad in the culture of our day, setting aside the very hope that men need, the help that is found in Christ, and embracing something else. Even our own denomination, we find churches tempted in, and even playing with these things. My friends, we must be steadfast with the whole counsel of God and to preach the gospel of God that salvation is in Christ alone. If we abandon the gospel, we have nothing for the world. Our message is of Christ. He is risen. He is reigning. There was quite a transformation came over those men. When he was crucified, they were fearful. They feared for their own death, their own lives. They, they fled from him. But these same men, having seen the resurrected Christ, went forth and were bold witnesses. They were bold even unto death. Bold proclaiming Christ, the only hope for sinners. Here's proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. Witnesses saw him. 
They were transformed by him and sent to the nations, and they went boldly with a clear demonstration of the Spirit's power that Jesus had breathed in them and upon them, filling them, leading them, animating, and granting them wisdom. That church was founded on these apostles, and it's still here today. It is still here today, barring from Martin Luther. Yes, our ancient foe seeks to do us war, work us woe. His craft and power are great. His arm, he's armed with cruel hate. But, but the church does not rely upon our own strength. Our God is the mighty fortress, and we will not fear. One little word will be Satan's undoing, and the word of the gospel will go forth in power. The church endures because Jesus builds the church. He's the one who established it, and he keeps it, and he's coming for us again. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we do marvel at your mighty works of old. You did mighty works through the prophets of old. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. You sent fire down to consume his offering. You've done mighty works through other prophets as well and the apostles afterwards. But above all, we see the mighty work Jesus Christ, God the Son, come from heaven in joining our humanity, living an obedient life and suffering a death in our place, crucified, dead and buried, and yet now risen as he was that first Sunday morning, triumphant, victorious, ascended to your right hand, ruling the nations. Oh, indeed, nations, kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you, for he has a rod of iron. May all the nations tremble before him. And, O oh God, may you exalt Christ in our day, preserve your church, build your church, and come for her at the appointed time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing number 283.